Have you guys enjoyed Daniel at all? Has that been any fun to you or not? Or is it just, you're like, eh, whatever. I love it. I, I do like violence. Well, <laughs> I, yes, kind of. I like, um, I like history and I like ancient history. And, um, and I keep saying if they made a legit movie out of the Old Testament, it would be more popular than, you know, Game of Thrones. If they did it the way it's portrayed, you couldn't beat the ratings on this. But no one, you know, no one's going to do that because it's real, real, real bad. But um, I've enjoyed doing Daniel because I like taking it chapter by chapter because I've been able to really get a bunch of things out of each chapter. And it's fun to study the Bible that way. And so I appreciate you going there with me because it makes me do it, and I love that. So we're going to look at um, Daniel chapter 4. Oh, I have my sermon right here. I was looking at my old sermon from last week. That's not going to work. Did you like it? The title is Rain, Ruin, and Restoration. Rain, Ruin, and Restoration. Okay, so what would you say? I don't know. Yeah, right. Um, so let's do a recap of, of Daniel for my fourth hour. We've got... Uh, Daniel and his three friends being exiled from Jerusalem, from Israel, into Babylon. That's what we see in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see a dream being given to Nebuchadnezzar about a statue, four different types of materials in the statue, and then Daniel um, interprets that dream, and he, Daniel becomes known to the king for being wise and someone who can interpret dreams. And so this is, in chapter 2, is is um, Nebuchadnezzar's first hmm, taste of that there's a God different than the gods of his country. There's a God most high that can interpret dreams. Remember, this was so, and this is, I'm like, Nebuchadnezzar, he's crazy. He's like, I've got a dream that I want you to interpret, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You tell me what it is. That's crazy, right? He's crazy, man. But Daniel did it. It's kind of a good test, right? Yeah. And then in chapter 3, we have, we have the real Nebuchadnezzar who comes out, and he's kind of a cruel, crazy man, and he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. And so that's now we're to chapter 4. So in case you haven't um, figured it out, Nebuchadnezzar is a man of great extremes, right? So we've got one of the most powerful men in the world, who's Nebuchadnezzar, According to him, which, you know, he makes up the history, so this may or may not be true, he's never been defeated in battle, okay? He builds one of the most well-known cities of the ancient world. It, it houses one of the um, seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens, which he supposedly made for his wife, who was so lonely for her um, homeland that he created a garden to represent her homeland to her. He, he was incredibly rich incredibly powerful. Um, he was known to be a builder. But the other thing he was, <laughs> was he was personally very cruel, vile, and vindictive. According to Jeremiah 29, 22, this goes back to my Game of Thrones thing, like he roasted two men in a fire. He threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. He had King Zedekiah's sons put to death before him and put out the king's eyes before taking him to Babylon. To, so we can't really say that he was a righteous man, right? I mean, not at this point of his life, okay? He was a powerful man, 
and he was beginning to um, he was beginning to know a different God than the gods he had worshipped in Babylon. We know that God revealed himself in a dream in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he said, who's that person walking around in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And so he's beginning to have some kind of a inkling that, that there's a God most high, if you will. But at the beginning of chapter 4, he hasn't quite got there yet. Okay. So in chapter 4, verses 4, and here's the, oh, here's the cool thing. Chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know he's, the, I wish Nathan was here because I had this just handy for him. Chapter 4 of Daniel is the only chapter in the Bible written by a Gentile. Take that little tidbit home. Isn't that awesome? And um, so he was, this chapter 4 is the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. He actually writes this testimony, and according to um, scholars, it's been, it's communicated throughout the whole land. Like, he sends it out to the whole land to tell people what God has done for him, okay? So at the very beginning, this is his intro to his letter, if you will. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So one important thing to note here is that um, he was at the height of his reign, so to speak. Well, actually, no. His, the height of his reign comes afterwards, but he thought he was at the height of his reign. He was contented and prosperous. He was self-absorbed. He looked out over his, his domain, and he's like, this is everything I've created, and I'm content, and I'm prosperous. It can be argued that he was so self-consumed that he had lost touch with the poor around him, and he had lost touch with his own poverty of spirit. He had lost touch with that he was not God, that he was only a man, and that his arrogance was beginning to take him over. This this chapter can be titled, I mean, the theme of this chapter can be pride versus humility for men, for humanity, and on God's side, sovereignty and grace. So we're going to see here what does pride of life, what does arrogance in our own achievements get us, and who is God really? So he, this was the dream that he had, the one that scared him so bad. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter. And the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked. And there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots be bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, 
and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Daniel 4, 10 through 16. So what this was was a dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what to do with it. And he was afraid. It was a very fearful dream. And so what he does is he calls all the Chaldeans, those are the, the magi, if you will, the dream interpreters, to come and interpret the dream. And, of course, none of them could, right? So then he remembers, wait a minute. There was somebody, oh, yeah, Daniel, who interpreted a dream for me before. I'm going to call Daniel and see if he can tell me what's going on. And he said he called Daniel because of the spirit of the gods inside him. When Daniel came, he knew exactly what it meant, but he didn't want to tell him the dream. He says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, but you, O king, are that tree. He goes on to say that God had ordained that the king would become like a beast of the field and that seven times would pass, which can mean years or, or not. It doesn't necessarily say, mean years say years in the Bible, it could be seven is a perfect number. It could mean at the perfect time he'll be restored, but that he's going to go through a period of what was known back then. Well, what, what modern-day people call it is insanity. They call it, this is such a cool thing, lycanthropy, which is where we get werewolves from. Again, super cool. Or bow, now they call it boanthropy, because it's, um, he became like an ox, and he ate the grass of the field, and the rain came on him, he lived outside, and he was insane for a period of seven periods, whether that was years or months or a perfect amount of time. Like he, that's where the idea of werewolves comes from. So cool. I know, Janet, it's true. It's so true. Lycanthropy, that's the werewolves part, boanthropy, that means um, a cow, cattle. So interesting. That's why I love it so much. So what happened was he said, this is what's going to happen to you. If you don't straighten up, and he says, begin to care for the poor, begin to look around, this is going to happen to you. That, that tree represents you. You are the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen, and you supply um, shelter to the birds and all the animals come and they rest underneath your branches and you're an incredible kingdom but it's going to be taken away from you if you don't change your ways and what did Nebuchadnezzar do he didn't change his ways twelve months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I? That word I means I myself, that I myself have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. He did not get it, did he? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And he was struck at that moment with the famous 
lycanthropy, or boanthropy, however you want to call it. A lot of people think that there's a parallel in this, and I don't I mean, you can draw this if you want to, that when we um, become rebellious and are arrogant and prideful, we, ab we actually begin to take on the characteristics of the beast because we're no longer in line with the sovereignty of God. And so it was appropriate for this type of insanity to be put on him to represent what it's like when we're not walking in humility with the Lord. This whole chapter is about right relationship with the Lord, submitting to his arrangement for your life, from Bob Holloway, quoting Bob Holloway. And what was happening was, Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I don't need God. I did all this. This is all me. I'm the most powerful man in the world, and look what I've created. And I'll tell you right now, that doesn't sit right with God. That doesn't sit right with God. In James, it says, what's our famous scripture in James? Pride? No. Though, no. Um, I can't all have it, but I have pride goes before a fall. That's not James, though, is it? That's Proverbs. What's the one in James I'm thinking of? Um, um, God does not like a haughty spirit, something like that. Yeah, Google it for me, Sharon. I think pride, we can look at pride in a couple different ways. We can look at pride as being um, puffed up and saying, look what I've done. I've created this. This is all mine. Um, I don't need the Lord. Or we can also look at pride as, um, as, as saying, We take, we take credit for what God has done in our lives, but then we also, when we become independent of God, that's what I'm trying to say, there's another type of pride that says, I'm not um, affiliated with God in any way. Like, like, he may exist, but I got nothing to do with him, and he's got nothing to do with me. That's a different kind of pride. Are you following me? Um, I'm trying to get my, my idea here. It's right here. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you remember when um, Brian Fenmore was here and he talked about there's three kinds of people. There's people that know God and serve him. There's people who know God and don't serve him. And there's people that don't know God and don't, don't serve him. And I think that's a good, a good um, way to look at it. But I think you can break it down to two things. There's people who serve God or people who don't. He's either Lord of your life or he's not. It doesn't matter if you know him or not. It doesn't matter if you know of him or not. He's either who you submit to and you're humble before, or he's not. And, and that can manifest in a bunch of different ways. It doesn't mean you walk around being super arrogant, but it means you absolutely do not recognize his sovereignty over everything. That's a form of pride, even though it doesn't come out in this arrogant kind of way. It's when you ignore God. That's what I'm trying to get to. When you say God is not involved at all, and doesn't make any difference in this world, that's a form of pride. Because you're raising yourself above the knowledge of God. Does that, you guys following me there? Thank you. That's it. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. That's exactly it. 
So after the seven years were up, the, there was a restoration of King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. It's interesting, the Most High is the Aramaic word for sovereignty. It means sovereignty. And you're going to see that um, this word, the Most High, is actually what, the, um, what Satan said in Isaiah I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That word most high means sovereign God. It's not redeemer. It's not restorer. It's not savior. It means sovereign God because the point and the, the theme of this chapter is the sovereignty of God for King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the sequence. Sometimes, you guys, when people are going through um, whatever they're going through, whether it's the discipline of the Lord. And, you know, this is kind of weird because when I, was, when I was studying for this, I'm like, you know, we don't always talk about God's discipline. We don't always talk about his sovereignty because sometimes we don't want to because we want to think everything's rainbows and unicorns. Right? And we want to think that God sometimes is Santa Claus who never spanks us or never chastises us or never, never has a word, right? I mean, I want that sometimes. I don't want to be corrected. I mean, right? But you can't get away from it that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign and he's not going to be mocked. And especially by crazy people like King Nebuchadnezzar who thinks he did it all, you know? It's a real warning to our... Um, our leaders in the world, that they cannot mock the Lord no matter what. There's three things that need to happen to bring restoration. Why are you laughing, Sharon? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. There's three things that need to happen to bring restoration. When you find yourself in a place of being corrected, or learning a lesson, or being chastised, or just anything. There's three, there's a formula for restoration. You look up, which means you look away from yourself. You don't look at yourself, what you got going on, how cool you are, or even how pitiful you are. You look up, and then you wake up. Your sanity is restored. When you stop looking at your circumstances and saying, wow, wait a minute, it's not all about me. Hmm. God is sovereign, and I can actually not have to focus on this problem, and I get to look up. That's when your sanity returns. And then you speak up, and you praise God. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar says at the end, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say, what have you done? So the theme that we have in this chapter is, like I said at the beginning, there's two themes, the human side and the divine side. The human side is those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar says. Pride goes before a fall. Pride is not walking in the arena 
arrangement that God has for our life because we think we know the better arrangement, right? We're like, well, I know how to arrange my life better, so I'll do it my way. That's still pride. And, you know, sometimes God will just let us go around the mountain, around and around and around and around until we finally go, well, maybe my way's not working, right? Sometimes he's like, you know, daughter, son, I really want you to get what I'm telling you, and I'm not going to beat you over the head because I'm a good, good father. But you're going to be stalled out here until maybe you cooperate with the arrangement for your life because I'm in charge of you. And we don't hear that enough sometimes, right? Again, we want to emphasize grace because God is grace and he is a good father. We don't always want to emphasize correction, chastisement, discipline because, it's, because we've seen it done poorly. We've seen it done badly. And so we shy away from that kind of thing. But it's here in the Bible, and so we have to look at it. And God does discipline those who he loves, and he's going to train us, and he's going to lead us, and he's going to let us flounder around until we look up and say, hmm, maybe there's some other way to do it. Maybe my way is not the right way. And I think um, as we mature as Christians and Christ followers, more and more we give up our life we lose our life to gain it. It's such an un-American thing to do. In America, you succeed, you achieve, you perform, you can rags to riches, pull yourself out of the gutter, do, 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 do. That's not the kingdom way. The kingdom way is lose, 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 lose. Lose it all to gain What? Right? Do we preach that enough sometimes? Look up. That was the last one. Yeah. Look up. Wake up. Speak up. The second one, the second theme of this chapter is God is all-powerful. Right? He, we know that he's sovereign. He gives, he gives kingdoms and he takes kingdoms away. But the one thing I wanna, um, want you to understand, God loves people and his creation far more than we do. And he's going to do whatever it takes to pull them back into righteous relationship. His sovereignty isn't just to be a harsh and omnipotent being. I'm sovereign and you're not. You're my creation. I'm sovereign. Do what I tell you to do. That's not what it's about. And that's where we get all messed up. His sovereignty exists to pull us back into relationship with who he is because he's a good, good father. So when we talk about his sovereignty, we do get mixed up in our doctrine. Not mixed up. We get dogmatic in our, doc, in our doctrine where we go all in with sovereignty or we go all in with grace and we don't see both sides of it. And it's a hard mystery. It's a hard line to walk. But what we've got here, you guys, God is sovereign. And frankly, he gave King Nebuchadnezzar insanity so that he would come to his senses. We see in the prodigal son, God as represented by the father, he let that boy go. He let that boy go and let him come to his senses so he could come back into relationship with the father. God is always drawing people to himself. How do I draw you to myself? But I'll tell you something, when you've given your life to the Lord and when you've said, 
I'm going to be a God follower, just like Bob says, he takes that stuff seriously. He's like, oh, okay. You know what that means? We'll have to talk about a couple of things together. And when you don't talk about them, he keeps talking until it gets a little bit louder and a little bit louder and a little bit. Am I right, Bob? His, but his goal is always relationship. His goal is always restoration. I see in this chapter a picture of the whole of humanity, if you will. Humanity was created to reign. And when we went down with pride, when we listened to the enemy and said, we can be like gods, we don't need God, let's be like gods, that was our ruin. And now God is doing everything he can and every, moving heaven and earth to bring restoration back to humanity. That is his number one goal, is to restore us back to our kingdom. Here's the thing. When Nebuchadnezzar was restored back to his kingdom, it was better than it ever was before, greater than it ever was before, after his ruin. And that, to me, says that God is powerful to do all things, things that we don't understand in our own strength and we think are impossible and we get... I know for me, you guys, there's some things really dear to my heart, and I get real depressed when I don't see them coming around. I do. I get real sad when things aren't the way I want them to be. I want a white picket fence all the way around my house. I want a white picket fence. And when my fence is not white and not picket and broken down and there's nothing I can do about it, it's real hard for me. But what this tells me, the sovereignty of God covers that and like you and I were talking to him, and I get to trust him with all my deepest desires. Because he's a good, good father. And in his sovereignty, he is working things out that I don't even see and that I don't even know. And I can trust him in his sovereignty. He's a good God. He's a good God who deserves our humility that we need to remember we're going to be one of two people. We either serve God or we don't. Doesn't, I mean, we know him. We want to know him too. But we either serve him or we don't. I want to serve God. And, and so that goes back to to go high, we got to go low. If we want to go high, if we want to experience our full restoration, low is where we go. That's what Nebuchadnezzar figured out. You want to go high, you got to go low. Because God loves the humble heart. And it attracts people to himself. And it attracts blessings when we're humble. So I just love chapter 4. That's what I got out of chapter 4. I thought it was so good. Is that good? Would you guys um, pray with each other? Get with somebody 